I have a question for you, Jason. Fire away. You know, sometimes when I talk to people and after decades in prison, 20, 30, going on 40 something years, how many people have you experienced that do have such a strong support system? Like they still have their parents, brothers, sisters connected with their children that they might have had before prison. Well, I don't know the percentage, but I can tell you this for the people that do, it's a literal lifeline. Just knowing that there's people out there that love you, that care about you, that are concerned for your well-being, um, it can be literally the thing that saves people and it can be the thing that helps to free them. It's like a gaping hole. It's as if his family is incarcerated along with him, in other words. We're doing the time with him. From Lava for Good, this is Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Today, Brian Parnell. On August 28, 1997, Konstantinos Bulius, also known as Gus, finished closing up his two pizza shops in the suburbs of Philadelphia. He went home to his wife, Daphne, and two children. Sometime later that night, Daphne woke up to a loud bang. She found Gus lying on the floor, shot in the back. Daphne and her children tried to help and called 911. Gus was taken to the hospital, but by the time he arrived, it was too late. Gus Bullius was gone. Responding officers took note of evidence at the scene, collecting hair samples and several partial fingerprints. But after searching the house, detectives decided even with nothing actually taken from the home, that it was a robbery gone wrong. Detective Kenneth Beam ran the prints through databases in Pennsylvania and surrounding states, but no match turned up. Eventually, the case went cold. Four years later, Detective Beam took the prints to the FBI to run them through their national fingerprint system. And suddenly, he had a suspect. 29-year-old Brian Parnell. Despite having multiple alibi witnesses, Brian was arrested for murder on September 18th, 2001. I was in shock. I was really in shock. Like, oh my God. You know, this is like, oh man, I still feel the emotions. I mean, talking about it right now is making me tear up because I don't know if you've ever been accused of something that you know you didn't do, no affiliation with. And I've been living this nightmare for 20, going into my 21st year. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics, 
in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts brian parnell was born in philadelphia on valentine's day 1972 to Corinne and DeAndre Parnell. Brian Parnell is a very fun-loving kind of guy. He's a family, very family-oriented above all. That's how Brian describes himself. He grew up in a large, loving family. His father was a mailman, and his mother was a federal law enforcement officer. His parents divorced when he was little, but they worked hard to maintain family harmony. And I was blessed with very, very beautiful parents. Not just, you know, my biological parents, but also my step-parents. Even though my dad and my mom went through whatever they went through, they never reflected that on us. They made sure we were, you know, a part of each other's lives because my two younger sisters, they have a different mother than I do. They made sure we all knew who we are, you know, each other and interact with each other. So when I say that we were rooted in love, I'm very rooted in love. Brian's sister Tamara remembers this time fondly. Brian was always doing something. He had like dogs growing up, reptiles, frogs, um, fish. He was he was your normal child. But in being your normal child, he was very caring and concerned. He was compassionate. He had like a imagination that was just out of this world. My mother bought him this red outfit. And he would put that outfit on and he would do the, the Michael Jackson's Billy Jean. And then he would do the moonwalk. Or he, he had that, that dance and that song down pat. You would think he was Michael Jackson. I mean, he just was, um, or is a loving, funny, precocious, curious kid and an adult that evolved into this wonderful man. Brian's first child, Brian Jr was born when Brian was 25 years old. I used to take him out to the park on West River Drive, and we would go to this old bake shop and buy the stale bread, and I would take him out there and we would feed geese. And that was like one of the most beautiful things, just to see his mind expand at an early age. You know, being around him, it changed me as a man. Brian's daughter, Brianna, also brought some surprising changes to his life. He would do his daughter's hair, and I never knew a man to do a little girl's hair. And he would fix her hair, and it was neat. (laughs) 
Tamara says Brian was a great dad, channeling the love and support his family gave to him onto his children. My brother was in their life every day until this happened. By the time Brian Jr., Brianna, and his son Cameron were born, Brian was ready to have a career to support his family. He had a dream of opening an automotive shop because he'd always loved cars. He even had his own hot rod. So he enrolled at Lincoln Technical Institute to pursue a career in automotive mechanics. Things for the young dad and future mechanic were going great. That is, until September 18th, 2001. Brian was at school that morning. That morning was one of the most hands-down craziest mornings of my life. We were setting up in the, in the lab. We was inside the shop, and we was getting ourselves together for that day. And the principal comes to the door. He's like, uh, Parnell, I want to see you in my office real quick. And when I went in his office, there was two guys in there. And once I came in, they shut the door, and it's like four or five cops started walking up on the door outside the door and they started telling me hey mr parnell we uh got a matter with you involving a homicide and i said what because i'm i've never been in that type of life you know killing anybody carrying guns or anything like that i don't get down like that but when they turned around and said to me yeah we have your dna and we got your fingerprints at a crime scene you killed this guy from westchester i said wait a minute you got the wrong guy Brian denied any knowledge of the crime or any connection to Gus. Brian explained how he had only been to the town Gus lived in twice in his life. He was cooperative with police. You know, whatever you want to do, I want to give my hair and my samples up for DNA testing. I offered all of that from the gate. That approved my innocence. I'm going to give it to you. Despite his efforts to prove his innocence, Brian was arrested and charged with the murder of Gus Bullius. And to understand why, we have to go back four years to the night of the murder. Almost exactly four years earlier, Gus Bullius arrived home after closing his pizza shop. At around 2.40 a.m., Gus's wife woke up to the sound of voices in the hallway, a loud bang, the thud of someone falling, footsteps running out the house, and the screen door slamming shut. She ran out of her room where she found Gus lying on the floor. She and their two children tried to help him, but it was futile. Gus died on the way to the hospital. Detectives Gregory Stone and Kenneth Beam were assigned to the case. After inspecting the crime scene, they quickly concluded that this was not a random attack, but, quote, a robbery gone wrong, although no money or property was taken from the home. At the same time, 20 miles away from the Bullius home, about 45 minutes away by car, Brian was in West Philadelphia at his girlfriend Lakeisha's house with Lakeisha, her sister Jovita, and Brian's cousin Maurice. According to Maurice, they were all spending the night. If nobody else on this planet knows, I know that he was with me that entire night until the next morning. Brian had an alibi witness. Brian was with his girlfriend at the time, the, the mother of his uh, child. This is Mark Howard. I'm a professor of government and law at Georgetown. I'm also the director of the Prisons and Justice Initiative, and I co-teach a class informally called Making an Exoneree, 
with my childhood friend, Marty Tankliff, who was himself an exoneree, of course. And we have our students reinvestigate possible wrongful conviction cases. And if they feel strongly about it, to advocate for the person's innocence and exoneration. The Making an Exoneree program created a partnership with Discovery, who carefully reviewed Brian's case and concluded that Brian Parnell did not kill Gus Bullius. Brian did not know the victim. Brian did not know that part of town. He'd only been there a couple times in his entire life. It was not an area that he frequented. He had zero connection to the victim. He'd never been to the the pizza shops. Um, Brian had zero connection to any of that. So then why did the police home in on Brian? At the crime scene, Detective Stone and Beam collected DNA, a sliced window screen in the dining room, hair samples, and several partial fingerprints from the window, sill, ledge, and screen. And those fingerprints are what would later lead the police to Brian Parnell. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and to making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG Pro Bono Program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. After police cleared the murder scene, Detective Beam took the partial fingerprints they had recovered to the Pennsylvania State Police Lab to run them through the Pennsylvania statewide APHIS, the Automated Fingerprint Identification System. He also compared them to prints from surrounding states, New Jersey, Delaware, and D.C. Each state has to be queried individually. The night of the murder, Beam got a hit on one person right away, but he determined, after visually reviewing the prints, that they did not match. And so he immediately eliminated this person as a suspect. And that person was never questioned, investigated, or arrested. The lead was completely ignored. Now, it's time to take a step aside and talk about fingerprints, because they're not a perfect science. It's an approximation. It's humans making judgments based on similarities to their naked eye. So keep that in mind. This is not science. This is really more art. Fingerprints have to be compared manually by experts. Detective Beam was actually considered the best fingerprint guy in Chester County after just a few FBI training courses in latent print testing. He didn't have an academic or doctorate degree in forensics. And Beam was the sole person left to determine who these prints belonged to. And again, the prints were partial fingerprints. Okay, so they weren't even full fingerprints. They're not good material to make a strong match. Even if you do have a full print, fingerprinting has been more or less debunked as junk science in the world of justice, similar to teeth impressions and fiber comparisons. And fingerprints have been accepted uh, as evidence in courts for over 100 years, and people assume that it's reliable. This is Mary Moriarty, chief public defender in Hennepin County, Minnesota. She's talking to wrongful conviction junk science host Josh Dubin. You are first looking at a fragment of the print, 
and it is totally within the subjectivity, the subjective discretion of a fingerprint analysis or examiner to decide whether there is enough information on that print to even go ahead and compare it. So just think about that. It is completely subjective. The Pennsylvania State Police searched for the person who matched the partial prints for over a year. They then concluded the person whose prints they matched was not in their system, and they registered the prints to the unsolved latent print database. Now, here's the thing. Brian's prints had been in their system at the time of the murder. He was actually arrested in the past on an unrelated minor charge. Yet, when they searched for matching prints, Brian's did not come up as a candidate or match. But despite that, Brian was arrested for the murder. It came completely out of nowhere because it was four years after the crime had taken place. Detective Beam was determined to close the case. It seems Detective Beam still had the Gus Bullius murder on his mind. At some point, four years after the crime, at a conference in Miami with the FBI, the detective brings these prints and then asks the FBI to look at them in a database. And it comes up potentially being similar to 24 people. One of those people is Brian Parnell. Brian's prints eventually popped up four years later as a potential match among dozens of others when the FBI ran them through their National Integrated Automated Identification System, IAFIS database. But we're talking about a very weak partial fingerprint that one person who was hell-bent on solving this crime, who had a tremendous amount of pressure on him to find somebody, decided this is the guy. And Detective Beam just fixates on Brian Parnell from that point forward, doesn't even look at the other 23. Despite testing the hair and DNA found at the scene of the crime, neither of which showed up as a match for Brian, he was arrested. And I think when he found Brian, it seemed convenient, Um, even though obviously Brian had no motive, didn't know the victim, didn't really go in that area, but he was close enough. I think the fact that Brian's African-American likely played a role. The fact that Brian had a previous criminal record, although very minor one, I want to emphasize, no violent crimes, nothing whatsoever, just some a couple minor um, offenses, and most of them have been dismissed. But I think that was convenient for the detective to say, you know what, let's just close the case. Let's get this guy. I'm going to declare it a match. He's going to get convicted and be done with it. The prosecutor at trial was first assistant district attorney Patrick Carmody. At trial, the fact that the DNA and hair samples did not match Brian was a hurdle for him. So they suddenly developed, but this is very common, as you know, in wrongful conviction cases. Oh, well, then there must have been a second perpetrator. Although there was no effort to ever find the second perpetrator. The prosecution had no murder weapon, no witnesses, no motive, and no connection between Brian and Gus Bullius. Brian was also 40 minutes away. The partial fingerprint was the only evidence used against Brian. In fact, during police interviews with Gus's friends, family, and colleagues, they gave the names of multiple people who actually could have committed the crime. The victim's wife thought that the person knew him and came through the front door. There were a lot of people with motive, with opportunity, people who had talked about killing the victim. 
uh, people who had grudges against the victim, people who thought the victim had stolen money from them. In fact, according to police reports and interviews, on the day before his murder, Gus told his business partner that he had become aware that a couple of his employees were discussing breaking into his home to rob him. At the time of the murder, there was nearly $50,000 in cash hidden in the rafters of Gus's home office in his basement. And his colleagues knew about that money. And the lead detective, Kenneth Beam, for some reason was fixated on two partial fingerprints on the screen of a window coming into the house and decided that only the person who matched those fingerprints would have committed the crime. And therefore, he rejected all these people who were obvious suspects and didn't investigate them because he decided their fingerprints didn't match. And Prosecutor Carmody ran with this. He was determined to get a conviction after all this time, which allegedly included bribing Brian's alibi witnesses. Here's Brian's ex-girlfriend, Lakeisha, one of the people he was with that night, talking to someone from Brian's team. The DA or whoever he was was asking me all the questions, and the police officers were bullying me, basically. Um, They told me that they would offer me $30,000 to say that Brian did it, a house and witness protection, and then I declined. And then they basically told me if I didn't cooperate and do what they wanted to do, they would take away my children. Now, you might be wondering, what about Brian's defense and alibi? Brian's parents were lucky enough to be able to hire private attorneys. His defense team were lawyers Ronald Joseph, Tariq Karim El-Shabazz, and Gerald Aston. And they came highly recommended to Brian by another incarcerated person. But quickly, Brian realized they were not going to help him to the extent that he needed. And I said, I want you to talk to my family, my entire family. And they didn't do none of that. He said, I called him. Nobody answered the phone. I said, that's not true because they call you. And they try to say, oh, I didn't get no calls from your family. I said, that's not true. They told Brian they were dropping his alibi defense. And that meant both alibis. Because Brian also had a physical inability to commit this murder the way the police and prosecution said it went down. Police insisted the killer came through the window. But Brian... He was on crutches at the time of the murder. At least a week before the incident and after the incident. Here's Mark again. And there's no way he would have been able to climb through a window when he was on crutches and couldn't walk. I mean, it just defies credulity. But his defense did not bring up his injury or call his alibi witnesses. They did not question the validity of the fingerprints or call their own experts. And alternate suspects were also not presented. So I had to ask Brian, how did that feel? It hurts. And to be real with you, I said to myself, they're railroading me. This is a railroad job, and it's a sloppy railroad job. It's blatant. I'm sorry, it's emotional. I'm sorry if my voice is breaking up, but it hurts. In First District Attorney Carmody's closing statement, he said, quote, I want to thank Mr. Parnell for not wearing gloves that day. He gave us the evidence. The defense can't explain away the fingerprints. Bottom line, and that's going to convict them. And it did. The fingerprints are what led to Brian being convicted. A very weak, partial fingerprint. So imagine a jury 
of well-intentioned people who are believing law enforcement, believing the evidence coming forward in trial, hearing it's a 100% match. That is completely fictitious. It's just outrageous. And the trial was an absolute farce. We're talking a murder trial with a person getting a life sentence. And it took place in under two days. And that includes the full trial and the jury deliberations. After only two hours of deliberation, Brian was convicted of second-degree murder and burglary. On July 15, 2002, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. First of all, it was devastation to, to the entire family. Here's Brian's sister, Tamara, again. 
It's as if his family is incarcerated along with him, in other words. We didn't do the crime, but we're doing the time with him. It's like a gaping hole. You, you know the person still exists, but you can't have regular contact or interaction with them that you normally would have on a day-to-day basis. It's horrible because you have to try to function as a family unit as if they're there, but they're not there. And especially when you know they've not done something or they've been incarcerated for something they did not do, that even hurts even more. And she says Brian's incarceration deeply affected his children, who were so young at the time. They had a hard time grasping in the beginning that he was away in jail with bars and uh, guards and in a place, an institution where we don't have any control over him coming out because they didn't understand. They wanted him to come with them when we would go visit at the prison. They wanted him to play with them. They're like, at the, parents can't play with their children in the in the prison system, or they have a designated area for the playroom for children, but the, the incarcerated people can't go in that room. And it's hard for a five-year-old or an eight-year-old to understand that. It was also hard for their mother to understand that. My mom, in the beginning, she engulfed herself with this case. Like, her dining room table used to stay full of his files and affidavits, the whole, everything. She had crime scene pictures, everything. And she really studied the case a lot, more than any family member. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, how, how, do, how do you help a parent wrap their mind or adjust to the fact that their child has been incarcerated wrongfully, let alone, but for 21 years. You you can't. But it also personally hurt Brian's mom because she was law enforcement and she taught her kids to cooperate and respect the law. So that's where it becomes a double uh, betrayal for my mom because she's like, my children, I raised him. I raised them and I raised him to be truthful and honest and to cooperate with law enforcement. How how do you take and incarcerate or make someone guilty of something and fix things to make it like it was they did the crime? So, yeah, that hurts. It's a dagger. I actually looked at law enforcement officers through the eye of my mother. And when I say I used to have that belief that Certain cops would do above and beyond, don't get me wrong, but there were a lot of good ones out there because of my mother. And that right there is where I try to keep it. I try to keep it still in that realm because, believe it or not, there are a lot of police officers that really mean and do good. You have a lot of them. While in prison, Brian has enjoyed studying law and assisting others who are incarcerated with legal work. He's even helped some corrections officers with the law when they were helping their family members. Brian says when he gets out, he wants to advocate for the wrongfully accused and help change the laws that result in mass incarceration. He plans to call his organization Homefront. Me and my son came up with, my oldest son came up with, the concept of calling it the Homefront to help family members in my situation geared towards parents, siblings, and children 
more so to teach them how to advocate for their family members that's incarcerated. But at 50 years old, above all, Brian works every day to prove his innocence so he can get out and be with his growing family. I have a whole bunch of beautiful nieces and nephews, and I even have now two granddaughters, and I have one on the way. Wow. Yeah. How old are your granddaughters? The oldest is five, and the, young, and the youngest is two. After being incarcerated for so long, Brian says what he's gone through is a nightmare. I wouldn't wish this on nobody. Nobody. It's, it's a nightmare to be accused of killing a man. I walk through these walls of this institution day in and day out with the conscience clear because I know I never killed nobody a day in my life. Brian has filed multiple appeals, and they've all been denied. As of 2005, one of Brian's attorneys, Ronald Joseph, was placed on administrative suspension and has not practiced law in Pennsylvania since. Brian is also represented by the Pennsylvania Innocence Project, which is seeking additional testing of evidence. This could result in a DNA profile that could then be uploaded to the national database. And that could be the very thing that finds who actually killed Gus Bullius. For more information on the case, go to justiceforbrianparnell.com and follow at Justice for Brian Parnell on Twitter. Next week on Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling, Devanya Inman, and Life After Exoneration. It's a lot more to it than just being free because the prison part, it was hard, but it's not harder than being thrown back into a big old ocean and you don't know what's in it or what's there no more. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Please support your local innocence organizations and go to the links in our bio to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom and Kevin Wordis, as well as senior producer Annie Chelsea, researcher Lila Robinson, story editor Sonia Paul, with additional production by Jeff Clyburn and Connor Hall. Special thanks go to Mark Howard and the Making and Exoneree program. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrongful Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both Instagram and Twitter at Maggie Freeling. Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. 
products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again and getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before and we're bringing you along with us with new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people... It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 